This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education, a nonprofit committed to educating a generation of solutionaries, students and changemakers able to think systemically and act compassionately to solve the challenges of our time. IHE offers award-winning free resources for educators, including a solutionary framework that guides students in addressing real-world issues with consideration for humans, animals, and the environment. Learn more about how you can become a humane educator with IHE's resources, online professional development, and graduate programs with Antioch University by visiting edcuration.com and searching the Institute for Humane Education, or by using the links in the episode notes. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We're bringing you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. Our guest today is author and educator, Dr. Charles Barrett. Charles has been a high school and middle school psychologist for over 13 years and is currently a K-12 administrator in Washington, D.C. He's a frequent speaker and workshop presenter for educators, families, and community organizations on the topic of social justice. Charles's many books include Today in School Psychology, a book of essays on hope and wellness called To Encourage You, a memoir of sorts about his experiences as a school psychologist called It's Always About the Children. He's also authored innumerable blogs and articles and has a mobile app offering daily inspirational messages. You'll find links to all those treasures in the episode notes, but today we wanted to talk to Dr. Barrett about his most recent book, Social Justice in Schools, A Framework for Equity in Education. I've been really thinking more about social justice and what it means for first school psychologists and kind of adopting a justice paradigm to embed that into how we practice, how we serve students. My work, I'm heavy on the school part of school psychology. So really working with teachers, administrators, and kind of being that educational um, arena. And just thinking about how do we challenge how people think without telling them what to think. So when we hear this term social justice, it's kind of a broad concept phenomenon, but I wanted to write something to give people a pretty concrete definition of what it is, why it's important, and how do we do this in schools to really promote more equitable outcomes for young people. Much of Charles's work is focused on assessment and identification of students with disabilities, including the tools used, the referral process, and who is included in the decisions. His book, while definitely research-based, is not, however, an academic thesis, but more of a workbook to help guide practices and ensure more equitable outcomes. It's very interactive. It's very user-friendly. People might use it in, in graduate coursework or undergraduate coursework. I was very intentional about having activities, having things for you to kind of think about and reflect upon as you go through, which is kind of part of who I am as a teacher. I really want people to understand the content and engage with it. So it really is meaningful. At the end of each chapter, for example, there are a number of just questions for you to 
discuss with your school-based teams or by yourselves, kind of thinking about how does this apply to me in my respective roles? So definitely it's not overly academic, but I do want people to benefit from the, uh, the material and then really use it as they do work with kids and for kids. Yeah, I really appreciated that. And it made me wish that I had a team, a school team that I was working with as I went through it, because some of the activities and the questions would have been so meaningful for me to have the opportunity to do with the team. So, and you're already talking about this a little bit, but who are all of the different roles that you've written this for? Who are all the people that this is for? And how might each one of those people use this? It really is for every single person who sees themselves working with kids. So for example, if you're a classroom teacher, there are things that that are in the book as far as how do I understand my students? How do I appreciate their unique backgrounds, their unique perspectives, what they've been through, what they've experienced, and how do I leverage their experiences to make instruction more meaningful or more accessible? If you are an EL teacher or a special education teacher, it talks about ways that we can be more mindful of students' strengths and not only focus on their weaknesses or their deficits. If you are a building principal or even work in central office as an administrator, you know, superintendent or a director, it talks about how you can be instrumental in advocating for policies or expectations of other school staff. When a phrase or concept like social justice becomes a buzzword, it's easy to toss it around in conversations without really having a shared understanding of what we all mean. So I was grateful to learn more from Charles about the academic theories and principles that underpin this term. So one of the most central principles of social justice, and I anchor this in a theory, which is Bronfenbrenner's ecological systems theory. It talks about how we must be mindful of what's happening around children, sometimes more than what's happening within them individually. So when I think about their communities, I think about their family structures, I think about the time and space in which they're living. So we can all maybe attest to living wherever you live in 2023 is different than 2019. The world has changed post-COVID. So when we think about all of these kind of overlapping and intersecting systems, how do we use that as perspective to inform how we teach, how we assess, how we identify um, children for gifted, for advanced placement courses, for disability. So it really is a broad way of thinking that applies to any role in education. So when I talk about social justice in the book, and I also talk about equity, those are two terms that I believe we we see as being synonymous. And I do make a distinction between them. So I would say that social justice is how we achieve equitable outcomes for young people. Now, in schools, we talk about sometimes disparate outcomes or disproportionality. So we have um, outcomes in terms of um, suspension rates or disability identification or graduation rates across groups, across gender sometimes, race, ethnicity. And when we have disparate outcomes, there is something in the process that's been flawed. So it could be how we refer, it could be how we how we assess, how we instruct. And and my point is that when we talk about a social justice paradigm, it's being critical of how we go about 
the business or the work of education to achieve more equitable outcomes for all young people. So social justice is kind of the vehicle that leads us to equity in our system. I want to talk specifically about your illustration of the fence Mm -hmm. when you talk about equality versus equity. You have written a lot about this idea of focusing on the fence as a strategy for bringing more equitable outcomes that you were just talking about. Can you help our listeners understand what you mean by that? I would love to. And that's probably one of the most central themes of the book. So we've all probably been familiar with these images of people or children standing on different numbers of boxes or no boxes at all. And they're trying to see over a wooden fence into a baseball game or watch a baseball game. And we see a lot in equity training or different courses. And almost immediately, people focus on, me included, we focus on the number of boxes. Now, I know that you can't see me as you listen to this, but on a good day, I am all of 5'5". I'm a short guy, and I'm the shortest one that's standing on two boxes. And I felt, you know, being a short person, there's nothing wrong with being short. Just give Charles, you know, more boxes so he can see over the fence. And I was talking to a group of superintendents a couple of years ago, and they challenged my thinking about that image. And someone said, we have to fix the fence. And it really refocused the real issue in schools, in society. So those boxes are meant to represent maybe interventions or support, Mm -hmm. small group, tier two, tier three. Accommodations, all of those. All those things, great. And those are important. Those are necessary, you know, to really meet the needs of students. But the fundamental problem is the structural inequities that are represented by the fence. So it's racism, it's poverty, it's school funding, it's trauma, it's all these things that are, that are happening that we oftentimes don't name intentionally, but those are really the, the bigger or the larger obstacle to that's impeding opportunity and access, which is what the game represents. So how do we provide opportunity they can see the game, engage in the game. It's by ultimately taking down the fence. I say that fences are constructed, and if they're constructed, they can also be deconstructed. So there are other images in that in that series. One would be a wire fence where you're kind of poking holes in those systemic isms or issues, challenges. But the real one is liberation, which is removing the fence altogether. And what happens when the fence is removed is that everyone can see into the game without the boxes. So the issue was not that Charles was shorter. The issue was that the fence was blocking the short person's access or availability to engage. So when I talk about focusing on the the fence, even from an instructional perspective, I don't think we can tier two or tier three our way out of what we're in. It has to be fundamentally changing how we teach at the tier one level. So universally, what do all children get? You know, high quality instruction and reading, writing and math, and not relying on small group reading or small group intervention. Again, that's important, but we can make kind of a bigger impact by, by thinking more systemically and addressing those fences that we have in society, but certainly 
in public education. So the idea of, of the fence is that, again, what's happening around the child before we focus on the individual student and their own needs, let's think more broadly about what, what we can do more systemically. So as a teacher, would an example of that be in just shifting my overall pedagogy? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Absolutely. So I think it's pedagogy in terms of what I'm teaching. So it it could be actual curriculum. It could be how I'm teaching. Again, I talk about, so most of my experience as a school psychologist was working with students from Honduras, Guatemala, and, and El Salvador. So a lot of cultural difference, language difference. And I found that one of the ways that we can be more effective as teachers is leveraging the child's native language strengths. So what they bring from their own culture, their own background, and how do I use that as a a launch pad to make what I'm teaching more accessible? So it might be referring to examples from their own culture to make the connection. It might be using cognate, so using words that might sound similar in English and Spanish to make, again, the connection between these two terms. So I think for teachers, absolutely, it's certainly evidence-based pedagogy for content and curriculum, but also how am I using who my students are, what they bring to school as a point to really make connections to the content that they're learning. I love that you use that example, Charles, because I've been in education and a teacher for a long time. And years ago, I don't, this has changed for sure, but we kind of used to lump our ELs in with our special ed. I, you know, kids identified with specific learning disabilities. Mm -hmm. We just kind of lumped them all together as kids who needed accommodations rather than looking at those kids as gifted. They have a second language. Correct. Correct. Their cognition is actually advanced. Exactly right. There's a book that I reference called um, Enrique's Journey, and it's a book by Sonia Nazario. To your point about we we look at you know L's in in particular as you know having disabilities or having you know weaker skills in in different ways. But one student told me that what he was demonstrating was what we call fluid reasoning or problem solving on the spot. And our IQ tests, our achievement tests don't capture that. So we give them our standardized batteries and they score lower because what we're measuring, they might not have been exposed to. But Enrique and so many other children have so many strengths, so many attributes, qualities that we need to be tapping into for him to navigate, you know, all these different countries and cultures and languages, nuances, that's brilliance. But again, our instrumentation oftentimes does not really capture that value that how can we really leverage that again to make them more effective and successful in public education? I want to talk a little bit more about what you said about social justice. You write Mm -hmm. in the book, Mm -hmm. if we are genuinely serious about embracing social justice, we must transform our thinking Social justice is not a condiment that is added to a sandwich or dressing that is placed over a salad. It is not something that gives flavor to our work after it's complete, but it is the work itself. And I love that you say that, first of all, because I feel like it's comforting to teachers Mm -hmm. to know that social justice is not one more thing that we're adding on and asking you to do 
or a dress. Mm -hmm. It's just an approach through which we filter all of our practices. So can you kind of illustrate those two approaches for us anecdotally? When I started hearing about social justice, it was probably about seven years ago. It seemed to be like the next hot topic in school psychology education. And, you know, like at one time it was diversity, one time it was inclusion, kind of these buzzwords. And what I found was people were kind of just adding social justice to anything. Uh, So whatever the issue was, uh, well, there's a social justice implication for that. There's a social justice. And it was just, it just seemed very unnatural, unnecessary, and it bothered me. And well, and I think a lot of teachers thought of it as like one more standard that I now correct, have to express. Correct, correct. Yeah. So I think, so, so for example, what it's not, so going back to my my background in, um, in assessment, well, I'll just do a nonverbal assessment and that would give me a better read on the child's functioning. But maybe it should be, how, do, how am I thinking about disability in the first place and why is the child even being referred for that process? So have I looked at their access to education? Have I looked at their access to intervention? Have I looked at how long they've been in the country? Who am I comparing them to? The kid got here maybe six months ago, three years ago. Have I understood the gaps in learning that might be be happening? Have I thought about trauma and what they've been exposed to or not exposed to even before I go down the path of this child must be disabled because they're not making expected progress? Have I thought about my own teaching? and how I've not modified curriculum effectively or leveraged their strengths in order for them to make progress. So adding the nonverbal is helpful, but that's just kind of sprinkling on some ketchup or salt and pepper that that makes the assessment seemingly more valid, more legitimate, when the whole thought process of even considering disability is flawed from the beginning. So I would say that the, the way of thinking really should inform whatever you do. Again, the the idea of the condiment, I think people want a quick fix. Well, I'll just do this. And I want to make the point that social justice is less about what we do, but really how we think or the activities are less important than our overall framework for understanding children and our roles in their lives. You know, it's interesting because we tend to just think of everything in education right now as an add-on. We're adding this, we're adding social emotional learning, we're adding, you know, all of these things that that were, you know, maybe missing. But the social justice lens feels like much more of a deconstruction yes. to me. Yes. <laughs> yes. And an add-on and an examination and a reflection. Correct. It's an it's an undoing of what we've done for generations. And it really requires the willingness to be critical of yourself or, or ourselves. And how can I be more responsive? How can I modify my behaviors to be more effective for my students? I used to say that social justice is about becoming more competent as educators. And I've moved away from even the term competence because competence to me suggests there's an end point to my learning. So I go to grad school, I get a degree, I'm competent to be a teacher or whatever my role is. And I've replaced competent with the word responsive. 
And what that means is that as I learn more about my students, my families, I modify, I adjust my behavior to meet their needs more effectively. Is it from a lens of, well, I studied for, you know, for 10 years or five years, I'm competent, or am I actively curious about who my students and families are to constantly adjust, evolve, grow in my professional practice? That just makes me so happy to hear you talk about that because it's just illustrating a growth mindset in yeah. life, mm-hmm. right? And it's always been interesting to me that we criticize our politicians as being as waffling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. when they change their mind about things. Whereas, I mean, shouldn't we respect that somebody is open to other viewpoints and willing to learn and change and grow? I always felt like that should be identified more as a strength. Correct. And it is in some arenas. But yeah, this idea of competence is sort of, and now I'm done. I tell my students, if you've never said I used to, then either you're very early in your career or you're not growing. If you're listening and feeling like the kinds of shifts Dr. Barrett speaks and writes about feel out of reach, you can order his book through the link in the episode notes, but you'll also want to explore the resources from today's sponsor. This is Zoe Weil, president of the Institute for Humane Education and author of The World Becomes What We Teach, a book based on the premise that education is the system which can transform all other societal systems for the better. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. Since co-founding the Institute for Humane Education in 1996, we have become a gathering place for educators who care about social justice, the environment, and animal protection, and who want to be part of an education system that teaches students to be solutionaries who can solve problems in their communities and world in ways that do the most good and least harm for everyone. If you are one of those educators, I invite you to visit our website, humaneeducation.org, and find teaching resources, online professional learning opportunities, and online graduate programs with Antioch University. You'll also find our website in the show notes. Thank you so much. I want to encourage our listeners right now because when you were talking earlier about this lens or filter of social justice, you give some very specific, granular, and pragmatic examples in Mm -hmm. the book Mm -hmm. about some of our practices and how to sort of revamp those Mm -hmm. practices under a a bigger social justice lens. Um, Mm -hmm. For example, in, in chapter three, you talk about the word gap, you talk about our zero tolerance discipline policies, and you talk about something very near and dear to all of us is the MTSS multi-tiers system of support. Mm -hmm. And you actually kind of offer a critique of ways that they ignore some of the relevant child, family, and school and community identities and can even be harmful to schools. But then you offer alternatives that are that are more um, constructive. So can you explain to our listeners how, say, the word gap, for example, can be implemented in a harmful way and what might be a socially just alternative? Yeah, thank you for the question. Love that. So the word gap, if you don't know, for the listeners, Hart and Risley's research, probably the mid-90s, I think 1995, and it was a study that they did And essentially, they measured the number of words that children 
from different SES groups were exposed to over, I think it was 18 or so months. And what they found was that the whatever the number was, when they multiplied that by several years, they got to 30 million words less exposure for children from lower SES groups compared to those from middle or high SES groups. And from that finding, they made some inappropriate predictions that that's why students from lower income groups are underachieving or underperforming in school. So based on what they're exposed to in early childhood, even before kindergarten, this is why when they're five, six, seven years old, they have lower reading score, lower math score, lower writing achievement. What's notable about the study is that virtually all of the students or children who were in the lower SES group were also Black students or Black families. So there's this confounding or conflating of race and SES, and those in the higher SES groups were mostly all white. And when you get to the 30 million you know, word gap, it's also blaming the family. It's because you didn't do this for your child when they were three or four years old. This is why they are underachieving, underperforming. Rather than looking at how do we, again, modify instruction to be more accommodating to meet the needs of students that might come in with different backgrounds or different experiences. So again, that's where I also talk about the leveraging of native language strengths. So even for EL students, the same phenomenon is that, well, they don't speak English. So the answer is teach them English and then they'll do better. When we overlook all of the richness, all the value in their native language that can be leveraged to help them make progress. So the word gap, like we say, being a multilingual learner or an English learner, rather than seeing that as a deficit, how do we use that as a starting place to really make instruction more accessible for young people? Yeah, and you use this term that was actually new to me, and I'd love for you to help me and also our listeners understand better, translanguaging. And what is that as an instructional approach? It comes out of the research with EL students or English learners and basically using what the student or family brings, you know, from their own own background as a starting place, a launch pad, leverage point for us to make instruction more accessible. So translanguaging as a concept is even if my students are native English speakers, but they might not be from the dominant culture, how might I, I use references to what's real to them. There's a guy, Chris Emden, he's a researcher out in California now, and he does a lot around hip hop culture. Now he uses that as a leverage point to instruct children maybe in urban environments. So that's an example of translanguaging is I'm using what's real to this student to make instruction more meaningful. You know, two words I've said a lot, even in, in this interview, well, one word is, is access or accessible, but the other word is opportunity. And, and those two terms are really central, pretty fundamental to social justice. Who has opportunity versus who does not and who has access versus who does not. So oftentimes what I think we see as an achievement gap is fundamentally 
uneven opportunity that not everyone has the same chances to achieve or same chances to learn the same access to highly qualified teachers and well-funded schools with books and resources and technology the example you gave of the hip-hop Mm-hmm. It just is making me think of the term that we probably used about 10 years ago now is that we were shifting to more culturally relevant practices and tools. It's that's still a big piece. It is. It is. Yeah. I don't think we can ever separate who kids are and what they bring to school from how we teach them. Yeah. When we shift our thinking from this being another thing to do Mm -hmm. to really betting it in kind of how we practice, how we do business, then it becomes really a part of the fabric of our work. Which is why you've written a book that provides a framework versus a scripted curriculum. Exactly right. Exactly right. I don't want to leave our listeners hanging because I know some of them are still stuck on the MTSS (laughs) mention that I made earlier. But you identify a couple of socially just alternatives to MTSS. Can you explain one or two of those methods? So I would say one is definitely appreciating issues of culture and context as you are talking about PBIS or instruction. So PBIS, you know, positive behavior, intervention, and supports. And that's a wonderful approach. It's a strengths-based. So we're reinforcing kids for doing the right thing. And we're teaching them also these behavioral expectations. The challenge with that is who says what's right or who determines what's acceptable or appropriate behavior. So for example, if a school-based team, you know, teachers, principals, principals, deans, counselors, psychologists, whomever, are the only ones represented on a team, and we establish these are our behavioral expectations at school, and there's no representation of families, of, of, of students, or even community voices, community members, we run the risk of a disconnect between what the school values and what the families or students or community values. And when when children don't see themselves reflected in expectations, they might not engage in those behaviors. So a much more effective way would be this partnership, this collaboration that we have student voice represented. We have community members represented. We have families. And even if you have staff, we have staff from various backgrounds represented. And that's not only race, ethnicity. I want to be clear about that. That's one element of of difference or, or identity, but there's also faith, there's gender, there's a whole host of examples that need to be included as we establish what we think is acceptable or appropriate uh, school. Another nuance that might be subtle, but even kind of in that behavioral vein, good or bad, but expected behavior at school versus unexpected behavior at school. I think when we say that, we're not devaluing what might be valued at home or in the community. We're just saying that at school, this is expected, and at home, you might have something different, but it doesn't kind of set up this adversarial conflict between one is better or worse, um, they're just different. So I think certainly including you know, members of your community broadly defined as you're establishing 
behavioral expectations can be very, very helpful to really appreciate issues of culture and language and difference in different ways on your programming. Yeah, and I think it's important to acknowledge that this work is not easy or not comfortable. I remember um, interviewing a, a DEI director from a district here in Colorado a couple of years ago, and he said, if, if everybody's comfortable, you're probably not really doing the work. Correct, correct. And so, I mean, because this involves issues of uh, of race, socioeconomic inequities, gender, we have to talk about privilege. I mean, all of this is is uncomfortable at all some level for, for most of us. And so what advice do you have for educators or teams for managing the discomfort, the relational tension, and even the, the ambiguity around this work and the cultural and structural shifts that we're asking people to make? Great questions. I'm going to say something that I truly believe. I believe that you should get the book because I do think the book is a balance of pushing people, challenging them to be uncomfortable, but also supporting you in that process. Yes, I believe that there's kind of a, a sweet spot. It's not too hard, but not too easy or comfortable. But there is a spot there. There's enough tension that's created but if you persevere through that, I promise you, I'll support you in that in that process. I would say for school-based teams, uh, two things. Who presents to your team matters. And what they're saying in that and what they're presenting also matters. So, for example, I like to present a lot with a white woman, also a school psychologist. And we were talking about, about you know, racism, implicit bias, and privilege, all these things. We were very intentional about who delivered what content because the same message could be delivered by me and taken differently than coming from her as a white woman. And the same is true in the reverse. Uh, yeah. So I would be thoughtful about what are you trying to deliver to your staff? And who is the most effective person to convey that message? The second idea, and maybe even before that, is when you're presenting or when you're kind of working with teams in this, you have to somehow find a way to quickly establish an environment that's, I want to say safe, but safe not at the expense of people being comfortable. So we can be in a safe space but also be challenged and be uncomfortable in that. And how you do that is I think you respect people's beliefs, opinions, you know, values, but also be clear about our goal is to move forward as a school community or as a, as a school team. So creating some type of dynamic through relationship that I can challenge my colleague in a way that's direct, but also respectful, that they understand the intent of my message, but also be mindful of who is saying certain things, you know, in training, you know, in messaging, that can also be very, very beneficial in your process. You know, that's what you just said, makes me think of a lot of professional learnings that I've attended where we don't set up group norms like we would with our students in a class discussion because we just assume that we're all educators and we understand that there are group norms at play. We don't. It has to be stated. It has to be explicit, right? And I think adult learning is oftentimes so much more challenging 
than children. You know, we yeah. bring, you know, 30, 40, 50 years sometimes of history, as I said before, that a lot of this is undoing, unlearning. Mm-hmm. The goal is to do right by all kids. Mm-hmm. And we're able to do that is adopting this framework, this way of thinking, these principles that help us to guide instruction, to guide discipline, guide counseling. So again, wherever you plug in as an educator, these principles, I guarantee, fit into your work. And it's yeah. going to be helpful for children. Yeah, thank you. And I just want to say that what that was not an intentional stage setup for you to plug the book, but obviously our listeners are going to want to know where to get a hold of it. So where can they find the book? They can go to guildfordpress.com. I think it's guildford.com, but Guildford Press is the publisher. Uh, It's on Amazon. I guess you can get it at Barnes & Noble. Borders has it. I think it's uh, nine chapters. Um, Yeah, and it's not a tough read. I've got it right here. I was able to make my way through it pretty easily and quickly. It's it's easily something that you can give your staff to read one chapter a month and have a a book study, you know, throughout the year. So it's really accessible wherever you are in your career, brand new teacher, brand new principal experience. There is something for you to revisit, to remind yourself, to learn about your career and about serving children. And I would say it's ideal for either a school-wide PLC or um, grade level or departments, professional learning communities. I would love for you to close out our interview today, Charles, with just sharing maybe one of your favorite success stories of doing some of this work in your own community. I want to reference one example from the book. Five years ago now, 2018, I was working for a middle school at at a middle school and got this email, all staff email. And I did not like the tone of the email and what the teacher was saying about one of her classes. And I felt that it was inappropriate. I felt that it was accusatory, blaming kids, all all the things. And I sat on that email for two days. And Saturday morning, I drafted and sent my own response. And it was the first time I had to directly challenge a colleague publicly. And in the book, I talk about when we have to challenge the status quo, including our colleagues, how we respond has to be directly related to the offense. So in other words, it was a public offense needs to be a public response. This this email went to an entire staff, you know, 50, 60, who knows, 70 people. And because students were named and they were kind of embarrassed publicly, my response had to be done publicly as well. And I in in the email, as you see in the book, I outline why I did that and my choice to do it publicly as well. And it was fundamentally about children. And secondarily, it was about using that as a teaching moment. And when I sent the email, I got many positive responses that encouraged me that the spirit in which I sent the message that was received by those who read it. And they understood that it wasn't about embarrassing the teacher, wasn't about shaming her. It was about, this is not cool for kids. 
So I often reference that example because I do think people, adults especially, benefit from real life experiences or examples that we can turn into teaching moments. And that showed me a lot, but it showed me that we can be direct without being disrespectful. We can use unfortunate incidents as powerful teaching moments. And when we have the best interests of kids at at heart and not ego, not shaming people, not embarrassing people, people genuinely get the message and they understand kind of what we're about. I, I want to inspire you to also be courageous about challenging things that you see that are not in the best interest of kids. You'll find links to Charles Barrett and all of his writings and resources in the episode notes, including Social Justice in Schools, a Framework for Equity in Education. And for further support in learning about and implementing a framework for social justice, you'll find a link to today's sponsor, the Institute for Humane Education. Susan Y., who earned her solutionary micro-credential with the Institute for Humane Education and now coaches solutionary teachers in Kenya, has this to say about IHE. After taking IHE's solutionary micro-credential program, I am able to link social justice issues to animal welfare and environmental issues. The solutionary micro-credential program opened my eyes to look at problems through a solutionary lens and it empowered me with practical tools that I'm able to use and to pass on to others. To get a free and fun introduction to solutionary teaching and learning, or to sign up for the Solutionary Micro-Credential Program, visit IHE's course on the EdCuration Exploration page, also linked in the episode notes. We're so grateful that you joined us today to learn more about this important topic from Dr. Charles Barrett. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you'll take a moment to like, share, and follow us. And we invite you to tune in again to reshape learning in our next episode of the Ed Curation Podcast.